You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So uh, today, um, I want to introduce a phrase to you that's going to be a really important phrase for us in 2018. In a lot of ways, it's going to be the phrase that I'm praying that the Lord would really just sink into our church family that we would all grab it and be conformed by it and think about it, that it would just be in some ways like an, an IV that just begins to drip into the, the, just the inner core of our church family. I'm praying that this phrase would do that. The phrase that I'm about to say is, in a lot of ways, it's the phrase that, uh, that defines and probably brings more clarity than any other phrase for me to pray for our church family. It's that important of a phrase. And it's the simple three-word phrase, enjoying Jesus together enjoying Jesus together. The majority of our Sunday mornings in 2018 are going to be spent lifting up and elevating this phrase for us to think about, ponder, consider, enjoying Jesus together. Uh, So we're going to start a two-week set of sermons today called Enjoying Jesus Together. After we finish this set of sermons, we're going to go over to the book of Philippians and just go verse by verse through the book of Philippians through a set of sermons we're going to call Jesus and Joy. Because one of the main themes in Philippians is joy, rejoicing in the Lord, that that sort of a thing. So we're going to spend a lot of Sunday mornings thinking about this and and considering and pondering this together. So that leads to the question of why would we do that? Why would we spend time thinking about the idea of enjoying Jesus and communally us as a church doing that together? Well, here's one of the, the main reasons is because I think far too many people carry a misconception about Jesus, about what God offers, about what God is after, I think many people carry a, a, a really bad belief in something that's not true about God or what God wants. I, I think many people have been seduced into a way of thinking about God, into a way of seeing God that would boil it down to something like this. He, here's what the, your options are in the Bible. This is the framework they see the Bible through, God through. The, the framework goes something like this. It's either Jesus or joy. So make your decision. It's Jesus or joy. So maybe a different way to say the same sort of a framework. It goes something like this. It's follow Jesus and forsake your joy or follow your joy and forsake Jesus. This is the way many of us think the Bible's operating. God is operating. This is the way many of us think that, you know, God, when he's he's presenting us with the invitation of coming and getting Jesus, this is how we think about that. So many people think about this. If I say yes to that invitation from God to go after Jesus, I am in that moment forsaking my joy. And if I want joy, In that moment of saying yes to joy, then I'm going to forsake Jesus. And if you listen carefully, you see that that sort of false dichotomy, Jesus or joy, built into a lot of language that is commonly accepted kind of in most church circles. As a for instance, you've probably heard the phrase that goes something like this. You know what? God really isn't worried about your happiness. God is really worried about your holiness. Now, I just think we need to do some, some, we need to ask some questions about that phrase. Like, is that really the way we want to frame what God is worried about? And there, there's some truth in it. I think in a lot of ways, that phrase is meant to say something like this. Hey, you're, you're, you're pursuing happiness down this dead end road that's not gonna deliver it. So, so go after Jesus instead of doing that. So I think there's a kernel of truth in it, but, but I think that phrase is saying more things that are wrong than it is things that are right. 
I think it's obscuring more about the heart of God and the heart of the gospel. I think it's obscuring more than it's actually illuminating. I think it's doing more damage than it is good. I think in a lot of ways, it's falsely reaffirming it's Jesus or joy. It's holiness or happiness. It's pitting those two things against each other. I spent eight years doing student ministry. Um, I still have flashbacks of seventh graders on a sugar high. I mean, I think it's some kind of form of PSD. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's bad. Spent eight years doing that. And one of the things that I just over eight years consistently saw is that students come into to thinking about God, thinking about life with God, with a firm belief that it's Jesus or it's joy. It's one or the other. So which one am I gonna choose? And do you know what students almost always choose? Joy. They almost always choose that. If that sort of false dichotomy is presented, they're almost always gonna go after the, the, the joy side of that. When it's presented as it's either happiness or it's holiness, they're almost always gonna go with happiness over holiness. This is... This is kind of a human nature thing. But when, I, when it just comes to watching students and, and the, what they believe about God, they have totally bought into that myth that it's either Jesus or it's joy. And I spent eight years of student ministry and now eight years of like life here at Stonegate trying to convince people that in the scriptures, it's not Jesus or joy. That is not the way the scriptures present this thing. In the scriptures, it's Jesus as our joy. That is the way the Bible frames life with God. It doesn't pit joy and Jesus against each other. It pits them directly together and says, come and get that. It's Jesus as our joy. It's not a happiness versus holiness, but it's ultimate happiness in our holiness. That's the way the Bible presents life with God. There is no doubt that when you come to Jesus, it is a fork in the road that's going to cost you many things. When you say yes to Jesus, you're going to say no to many other things in life. So that there is no doubt that you're gonna lose many things on the road of following Jesus. But joy isn't one of them. It's not one of the things God's asking you to lose. It's not Jesus or joy, it's Jesus as your joy. So let's start, I just wanna take the first kind of step into this this morning in Psalm chapter 16, in particular, verse 11. I want you just to read this along with me. Here's what it says, Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. This is the psalmist looking up to God and saying to God, oh God, here's what you do. You make known to me the path of life, God. And, and, and God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. The psalmist is looking at God and the presence of God and saying, it's right there with you, God, that there is fullness of joy. And, and God, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm gonna read that one more time with you. Just think about what the psalmist is saying. God, you, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now think about what Psalm 1611 is and isn't. There are no commands in this verse. If you, if you boil down this verse and you kind of condense it to its core, this verse is a declaration of truth. It is the psalmist saying, here is the location of joy. That, that joy is gonna be found in God. This is where the fullness of joy is. It's, it's in Jesus. 
But inside of that declaration of truth are invitations to come and get that, to come and experience that. Inside of Psalm 16, verse 11, inside of that declaration of, it's in Jesus where we're gonna find joy. It's at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Inside of that declaration of truth are two invitations. Let me work through them with you. Here is invitation number one from Psalm, Psalm 16, 11. Invitation one goes something like this. Hey, world, the whole lot of, of you human beings out there, it's God saying, come and get your joy. C come and get your joy. That, that's an invitation embedded into Psalm 1611. Come and get your joy. In Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter three, uh, when God says that he has put eternity into our hearts, he is saying something about the way that he has hardwired a human being to work. He's saying something about how he has made us, how he has designed us. He's saying something about the longings that he has put in us. And when he has said that he put, he's put eternity into our hearts, he is, he is alerting us and making us aware that he has planted in us longings that are too deep and too wide for temporal things, like things of this world. Gifts of God, like creation and money and, and marriage and sex and all these good gifts from God. He's alerting us that these longings are too deep and too wide and too vast for these sort of temporal things to satisfy. That the longings are just too big. You know, when you think about your physical body, in so many ways it is mirroring and telling us a picture of our, of our spiritual makeup. And in this way, when you think about your body thirst, like if you don't drink for a while, it begins to like be an unbearable thirst. That is telling us something about how God has hardwired our soul. That God has put into our soul a deep thirst. Something that wants to be satisfied. When you think about your body's desire for, for food, when it gets hungry, that is saying something. It's a, it's a physical parable of the spiritual reality that our souls have been planted deep inside of our souls with a deep hunger. Now connect that. God's created our souls with this ache, with this hunger, this thirst. He's put eternity into our hearts. And that hunger and that thirst, that ache in us makes every human being a joy hunter, a pleasure pursuer, a seeker of satisfaction. Every human being has been hardwired by God like that to be on the hunt for joy. Maybe you could think of it this way. God has made every human being, he's made us all a joy-motivated people. That's what you are, that's what I am, that's what we are. We are joy-motivated people. Now, I wanna take a tour through church history and let you hear from several voices in church history affirming that that we are a joy-motivated people. Let me just do a quick tour with you. I'm gonna go 1,600 years ago, all the way back to Augustine. Probably the most influential uh, theologian in church history. Listen to how Augustine says this. He was an African theologian. He said it this way. Every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. There is no man who does not desire this. And each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. Whoever, in fact, desires other things, desires them for this end alone to be happy. In a simple phrase, he's saying we are a joy-motivated people. Everything we do has this underneath it. 
Uh, Listen to Thomas Boston. He was a Scottish pastor in the 1600s. He said it this way. Consider what man is. He is a creature that desires happiness and cannot but desire it. The desire of happiness is woven into his nature and he cannot cannot be eradicated. It's as natural for him to desire happiness as it is to breathe. That's how deeply planted in us the desire for happiness is. Listen to Jonathan Edwards, considered by many America's greatest theologian. Listen to how he says it. He was alive in the 1700s, pastored in the 1700s. God used him as one of the mechanisms to bring in the great awakenings, uh, the revivals in America. He said it this way. There is no man upon the earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness. And it appears abundantly by the variety of ways they so vigorously seek it. They will twist and turn every way. They will ply all instruments to make themselves happy men. We are a joy-motivated people, he's saying. Listen to J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop in the 1800s. He says it this way. Happiness is what all mankind wants to obtain. The desire for it is deeply planted in the human heart. Planted by who? The inference there is it's planted by God in the human heart. This is the way God has made us. Uh, This is maybe my favorite example comes from Blaise Pascal. He was alive in the 1600s. He said it this way, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this. They will never take the least step but to this object, this happiness, joy, satisfaction, satisfying that deep ache put there by God. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Now, all of those things that we just read that kind of tore through church history, that all squares with with the scriptures. It's all saying the same thing. We are a joy motivated people. On a motivational level, why do we do what we do? We do what we do because we believe this thing in front of us, this action, this this being is going to produce the greatest amount of joy. It holds for us the greatest amount of happiness. That is why we do what we do. I I love how one pastor said it. He said this, this, this quest for happiness, this desire for joy is as much a law of human nature shaped and fashioned in the image of God as gravity is is a law of physics. It is an unbending law of humanity that we are joy hunters, pleasure pursuers. We are a joy motivated people. Now, I just want to anticipate the question of someone asking, but are you serious? Let's go back to Blaise Pascal. You're seriously saying that that's even why someone would kill themselves? Why they would hang themselves? Joy is why they're going to do that? And the short answer is yes. That's what I'm trying to convince you of, that even in that moment, joy is what's motivating them. So let me put it in a couple of pictures here. Think, think about this moment. Think about the scenario of you leave uh, church today and you go and jump in your car and somebody pulls up beside your car, they roll down their window, they point a gun at you and they say, give me your wallet or I'm shooting. You've got two options in that moment. Option one, you look at them and say, I'm not giving you my wallet, shoot away and you get shot. Option two is you say, here's my wallet. What else do you want? I'm in. Just say it and you can have it, right? That's option two. Now, what option are you going to take? If you're, if you're like, have any sort of like a sane bone in your body, you're going with option two, right? Because it's better to give a wallet away than to get shot. 
Now see, even when your options are limited, that is still a joy-motivated decision. In that moment, I don't have every option I wish I had to pursue for joy. But of the options I have, I'm choosing the option that holds the most promise for happiness and joy in my life. Here's my wallet, right? Now take that same scenario and apply it to a man who is hanging himself. What are the options? He is saying this, option one, I can continue living here in what feels like absolute misery for me. That, that's, that would be the perception of his life or her life in that moment. So, so that's an option. Or B, I could get to the other side of death and surely that holds out more hope and more happiness than this does. See, even in the moment of, of hanging oneself, that is still a joy-motivated decision. It's what decision is going to produce the most joy and that's what I'm going to bend my life and move my life toward. And all of that squares with the scriptures. We're a joy-motivated people. We're hardwired joy hunters. This is the way that God has made us. This is how he's created a human being to be. Now, then you can let that inform when you start reading the Bible. Contrary to what most people think they're going to find in the Bible, the Bible isn't against our joy. It's not against it. The Bible is not trying to tamp down our pursuit of joy. If anything, the scriptures are continually rebuking us for being half-hearted in our pursuit of joy. That's the, that's the bone the Bible wants to pick with you and I, is why are you selling yourself short in the pursuit of it? Why are you stopping with these joys and you're not getting that joy? That's the issue the Bible has with us. Listen to C.S. Lewis describe that. He says it this way. Indeed, if we consider the blushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Now think about that. He's saying, here's the problem the Bible picks with us. Here's the bonus picking with us. Your desires for joy, you're settling. They're too weak. They're not strong enough. He goes on to say, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's the rebuke of the Bible. The, the Bible doesn't have a category of it's joy or Jesus. It's happiness or holiness. That's not the category of the Bible. The Bible is looking at us and it's saying, no, here's the category. Jesus, as you come and get all of your joy. Come after it and pursue it. If anything, it is, it is rebuking us for not going far enough with it, for being too easily pleased, for settling in, for, for fooling about with little shots of pleasure. The, the little shots of pleasure like food or sex or ambition or the next purchase or the next home or marriage or kids or fill in the blank of what you're banking on right now for joy. It's saying, stop doing the little shots of pleasure. Stop banking on those things. All of those are good things. They're just not designed by God to deliver what you're demanding they deliver. They don't have the capacity to fill your heart the way that your heart wants to be filled. They, they can't do it. So the Bible implores us, stop with these little hits of pleasures and come and get, get your heart satisfied. Come and get your joy. 
That's the invitation of the Bible. The Bible invites us to come and get your joy. And then here's the next invitation. In Jesus. Come and get your joy and find it in the one place that your heart could actually be satisfied in Jesus. Psalm 1611, it's a declaration of truth. It's telling us something about the location of, of joy, about God being joy. It's telling us something about that. But then there's this invitation. And the invitation is come and get your joy in Jesus. It's not Jesus or joy. No, it's Jesus as your joy. So come and get Jesus and the joy your heart so desperately longs for. Randy Alcorn wrote a book called Happiness. It came out just here recently. I would encourage you to get that book and read it. Just put that on your 2018 reading list. Randy Alcorn, Happiness. In that book, he says this. I've studied more than 2,700 scripture passages where words such as joy or happiness or gladness or merriment or pleasure or celebration or cheer or laughter, delight, jubilation, feasting, exaltation, and celebration are used. All of those words are in the same family. Throw in the words blessed and blessing, which often uh, are, you know, are translated happiness, and the number increases. So here's his inclusion. God is clear that seeking happiness or joy or gladness or delight or pleasure, God is clear that seeking happiness through sin is wrong and fruitless. So there are ways that we can seek happiness that don't work, that, that are wrong and, and, and fruitless. It's a dead end road. But God is clear that seeking happiness in him is good and right. For us to come to God and enjoy God is a good and right thing. Now that's what I wanna spend some time convincing you of this morning. So I wanna just survey some biblical passages for the rest of our time. I'm just gonna survey eight or nine places and show you how that's true. How, how God is saying to us, seeking happiness in him is good and right and desirable. It's what he's made you for. It's what he wants to be for you. Let me give you some examples of this. Think about the way that God presents himself in the scriptures. And here is the way that he does it. God presents himself as our joy. God is him, you know, himself our joy. And I just wonder, do you think about God that way? Do you think about God as a person to be enjoyed? I think for most people, when we think of the word enjoyment, it naturally connects to a steak, to, uh, to sports, to a good movie. To, just think about the things that you enjoy. It naturally connects to those sort of things. But I think when we use the word enjoy next to God, a lot of us get really confused in that moment. Because we, we don't think about God as a person that, that wants to be enjoyed by us that invites us to enjoy him. But, but this is the way that God presents himself in the scriptures. He, he, maybe you could think about the, kind of what the scriptures hold for us and kind of present for us this way. In a lot of ways, God says, hey, I want you to see all of my gifts. Do you see my gifts? Th things like food and success and intimacy and marriage and kids and money and all of these sorts of things. But I want you to see those. I actually even want you to enjoy those things, but all of those are gonna be appetizers. The main course of your enjoyment is, meant, is intended to be me. I've designed your heart and your soul to work in such a way where what it really longs for is none of my gifts, but me. 
Come and get your enjoyment in me. Now, let me just show you this. Some of the ways the Bible talks about this. Psalm 1611 is a great example. You make known to me the path of life. God, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, what does the word good mean? It means that God is the sum total of everything that is desirable of everything that is enjoyable. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't just kind of theoretically know about it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 36, eight. They feast on the abundance of your house. And God, you give them drink from the river of your delights. God is saying, hey, I am a fountain of delight. I am a river of delight. And here's how I want you to know me. I want you to come and get into this river, submerge your head into the fountain and just drink until you can't drink any more of my delights. I want you to enjoy me that way. Or, or as Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So let this inform who God is. If we're trying to develop a biblical view of God, who, who is God? Does God reveal himself as, in the scriptures as someone who is against our joy? As someone who sort of wants to just tamp down how much joy we experience in life and the life to come? Is that how God presents himself? The answer is no, that is not the way God presents himself. God is the happiest being in the universe. And the happiest being in the universe comes to us and, and says, I want to share my happiness with you. I want to share my joy with you. I want you to come to me and I want, I want you into my presence where fullness of joy can be experienced. I want you to drink from the river of my delights. I, I, want, you to, I want you to experience me as bread that satisfies your hungry soul as water that quenches the thirst of your heart. I want you to experience me like that. I mean, think about this. God put in us this ache for satisfaction and joy. That ache puts us all on the hunt for joy. We have a joy thirsty heart. And that hunt is meant to take us all the way to Jesus where the fullness of that joy can be found. Now, in saying that, that also makes us aware of all of our problems, doesn't it? So I love how one theologian of a couple hundred years ago said it. He said, while all men seek after happiness, scarcely one in a hundred looks for it from God. That's the human problem. It's we all want happiness. We're all just moving in the wrong directions to try to get it, right? This is, this is your problem. It's my problem. It's our problem. Our problem isn't passion for joy. It's the path that we take to get joy. That's the problem. To use the words of C.S. Lewis, we're the half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. This is the human problem. We're just, we pursue joy in all the wrong places when God is saying, the fullness of joy is right here. Come and get it. Come and get it. Come and experience it. Maybe just to help connect the dot on that. This is something I think you should be very curious about that goes on in every one of our hearts in the room. I want you to think about this for a moment. Generally speaking, we all came into this room and we have been well-fed, well-loved, and well-clothed. 
Generally speaking, we've all come into this moment and, and those things are generally true about us. Well-fed, well-loved, and well-clothed. And yet, when your heart slows down and you can actually listen to the aches of your heart, the cries of your heart, you can hear your heart still crying out for more. Now, why is that? That is because your heart is so vast. Your heart is so big that nothing in this temporal world that you're gonna shove into it has a chance of satisfying it. Your heart is so vast and so big, it takes something the size of God to do that. That's the reason. This is why Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Until we finally begin to look for God for that joy and that deep ache of satisfaction, until we finally look to him, our hearts just stay restless, going from one of God's gifts to another, demanding they give what it doesn't have the capacity to give. God presents himself as our joy. Here's the second thing that we see in the scriptures. Joy was the aim of Jesus's teaching. This is John 15, 11. Listen to what Jesus says. These things I have spoken to you. So his teaching, his ministry, his ministry is about this. His teaching is about this. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus, the happiest person in the universe, God himself is looking at us and saying, here's what my ministry is about. I want to invite you into this overflowing joy of mine, overflowing happiness of mine. I want you to experience this. That, that, that's what I want for you. I want your joy to be full. That's what I'm after. That's what I'm laboring for. This is what I'm doing here. Now we need to answer the question, what is joy? What, what is joy? I love how Sam Storms defines it. He says it this way. It is a deep, durable delight in God that ruins you for anything else. There's joy. It's a deep, durable delight that ruins you for anything else. It's deep. It's not superficial or surface. It's durable. It doesn't, it doesn't sway with our circumstances. It's down under our circumstances because it's in God. Not in his gifts, but in God. It's a deep, durable delight that joy is satisfying. It's a delight in God that utterly ruins us for anything else. And that is what Jesus' words, his ministries were aimed at, to impart to you his joy, that deep, durable delight in God that ruins us for all else. That's what Jesus was doing with his life, is to give you that. Joy was the aim of Jesus' teaching. Thirdly, becoming a Christian is finding a joy that ruins you for everything else. If you want a picture for what it looks like to become a follower of Jesus, that's it. You find a joy in Jesus that ruins you for all other things in this life. Now think about Matthew 13, 44. It's a parable that Jesus gives. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like, he's telling us what God is like, what life with God is like. He's about to tell us what, what moving into the kingdom, what, what Christian conversion is like. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found, in which a man found, he found the treasure and then he covered the treasure up. Then this man who just found that treasure in his joy over finding that treasure, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field so that he can have the treasure. 
That, that is a picture of Christian conversion. That's, that's a picture of what belief or saving faith in Jesus looks like. So what is, that, what is that parable? What's the point of it? What is Jesus saying in it? He's putting himself into the parable as the treasure. Jesus is the treasure in the field. And Jesus is presenting himself as so valuable, as so enjoyable that we would gladly lose everything else in our lives if we could just get the treasure, if we could just have him. That's the point. This is what it looks like to believe in Jesus. Now, let me anticipate one question. You might ask the question, but doesn't the Bible talk about things like taking up your cross and denying self and about sacrifice and self-denial and, and those sort of things? It's not, it's not just about joy, is it? It's also about self-denial and, and sacrifice. So to answer that, yes, the Bible does talk about joy and it talks about sacrifice and self-denial and, and, and the renunciation of self and all those sorts of things. But I don't think it talks about self-denial in the way a lot of us think it talks about self-denial. I think it's in a different way than many of us think it talks about it. So think about this parable in, in Matthew 13 again. The key words are, in his joy. So just frame that parable around that, in his joy. Now imagine yourself asking this Matthew 13 person who gave up everything he had so he could get the treasure. Uh, imagine you ask, coming to him and ask him and asking him, okay, so, but doesn't Jesus like want, you know, self-denial and sacrifice? Didn't you sacrifice everything to get him? I mean, shouldn't we talk about that sacrifice and self-denial? And I think he would look at you and say, yeah, I think he'd say two things. Like in one way, yeah, there, there is a lot to say about sacrifice and self-denial. It, it really did cost me everything to, to get Jesus. But in another way, I, it doesn't even make sense to talk about the Christian life in terms of self-denial and sacrifice. I, I picture him saying, all, all I did was give up lesser joys so that I could have the one great joy. Who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, all I did was say no to these smaller joys so that I could get the supreme joy. So yeah, there is self-denial and sacrifice and there is those things, but not in the way that you're thinking about it. All that God's asking us to do is to give up these lesser things so that our hearts can be satisfied in the main thing. Or as Paul says it in Philippians 3, I've suffered the loss of all things and I consider them rubbish, trash, garbage, that I may gain Christ, the ultimate joy, the supremely valuable thing. So following Jesus has many moments of self-denial, but in no moment is it about, about ultimate denial. In no moment is God saying, sacrifice your joy. That's not what he's ever saying. All he's saying in a moment of self-denial is, stop trying to fill your life with what it will not, I mean, it won't work. Stop trying to stuff into your hearts these things that have no chance of satisfying your heart. Say no to these things so you can say yes to Jesus, the ultimate thing. Following Jesus will cost you many things, but joy just isn't one of them. It's just not one of them. So becoming a Christian is finding a joy that ruins you for everything else. Number four, the gospel is good news of great joy. This is how the gospel is, is defined. This is how it's talked about. It's good news of great joy. This is Luke chapter two, verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Isn't that interesting? That's how the gospel is talked about. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are meant to bring good news of great joy. This is what Jesus died to accomplish. We are sinners. 
And because we're sinners, we can't just go to God and get enjoyment. When we go to God as a sinner, we actually get the wrath of God, not the enjoyment of God. So we need someone to rescue us and to make us right with God. We need someone to take upon him, him our sin, to take our guilt and our condemnation on himself so we don't have to bear it. That's why Jesus came and lived and died to do all of that so that he could bring us to God so that he could reconcile us to God where everlasting joy is found, where pleasures forevermore are found, where the fullness of joy resides. That's what Jesus died to accomplish for you. Fifthly, joy is the fruit of God's spirit within us. Remember Galatians chapter five, verse 22? The fruit of the spirit is love. What's the second one? Joy. God has planted his spirit within you to help you enjoy God. It's that big of a deal to God. He's planted the spirit in you to help you enjoy God, to produce joy in you. Sixthly, joy in Jesus is actually commanded in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Philippians chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Now Philippians four, four could just as easily read like this. It would be just as faithful to the text to read it this way. Be happy in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, be happy in the, in the Lord. Enjoy Jesus. That's the command. Now, when I look at that command, I think it's one of the most gracious commands in the Bible. God has designed us to be joy hunters, to be pleasure pursuers. He's designed us that way. And then he's, he's made himself the only object that could actually satisfy our joy hungry hearts. And then he looks at us and he says, now here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna command you to do something. I'm gonna command you to take that joy-hungry heart of yours and bring it to me and allow me to satisfy your hungry heart. That is a pretty gracious command, isn't it? It's God saying, I want you to come to me and I want you to plunge your head down into the river of my delight and don't bring your head up until you have drunk your fill. Enjoy yourself on me. Enjoy me. I'm here for that delight in me. Drink from the river of my delights. This is why C.S. Lewis once said, it is a Christian's duty for every one of us to be happy as we can. Now you might just add in there, as happy in Jesus as we can. That is the Bible's invitation, to be as happy in Jesus as you can possibly be, to drink from the river of his delight as long as you possibly can. Number seven, joy will overtake all sorrow for those in Christ. For those of you who came in and you feel beaten up today, let this encourage you. Psalm 126.5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Psalm 30, verse five, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy will overtake all sorrow for those who are in Christ. Eighthly, God calls all people to join in the joy that he offers. He's got an open invitation to all people to come and partake of this joy to come and get their joy in Jesus. This is Psalm 67, four. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 66, one. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. God is an equal, he is an equal opportunity joy giver. Whoever wants it, he's saying, come and get it. That's the invitation of the scriptures. Ninthly, when we meet Jesus face to face, we will enter into his indestructible joy. Heaven 
is going to be entering into joy. Uh, do you remember the, the parable of the talents? L listen to one statement within that parable. Matthew 25, verse 23. His master, he, he's standing in for Jesus. That's the imagery, or the imagery for Jesus in the parable. Jesus, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the, not drudgery of your master, not duty of your master, enter into the joy of your master. If you want a one word description of heaven, there it is, joy. That's your one word description of heaven. In God alone is fullness of joy and that joy is going to last forever in heaven with God. That's what God's doing. This is how big of a deal joy is in the Bible. All of these passages are trying to make the single point that I want you to hear today. In the Bible, it is not joy over here and Jesus over here. The Bible doesn't say, hey, joy, you go get in that corner. Hey, Jesus, you go get in this corner and everyone decide whose team you wanna be on. That is not the way the Bible presents life with God. Life with God is presented this way. It is come and get your joy in Jesus. As much as you can bear, come and get your joy in Jesus. It's not happiness over here and holiness over there. It's happiness in God forever. That's what the Bible is offering. This is what Jesus is presenting to the church. He's saying, Stonegate, how about you this year come and enjoy me together? Let me finish by saying it in the words of the prophet Isaiah. We'll just finish with his words today. What is the invitation of the Bible? What is God offering to you and I? Here it is, Isaiah 55, one and two. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me diligently and eat what is good. Enjoy what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That's the invitation from God. Will you pray with me? What is the wine? What is the milk that's without price? What is the rich food that we're invited to delight our souls in? It is God. It is God. And I wanna give you a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful and to wipe away what wouldn't be. This is the point in our service where we get to respond to Jesus's invitation to come and enjoy him. And for some in the room, we've never had the Matthew 13 moment. We have seen God as many things, 
But until we see him as the one, the supremely valuable one, the supremely satisfying one, then, then we might have known him as a lot of things, but I just don't know that we've known him as our savior yet. So, so maybe one response might be to forsake all of these lesser loves, just like our Matthew 13 man. Forsake all these lesser loves and in our joy, go get the treasure of Jesus. Be rescued and redeemed by Jesus. Another response in the room might be to look at all of those areas in our life where we are pursuing lesser joys as if they will satisfy our soul. We're banking on these lesser joys, money, ambition, sex, marriage, kids, the next thing, the next purchase. You just fill in the blank. As if, as if those things are big enough to fill a gaping void in our soul. So maybe our response is to this morning say no to all of those things. Yet, yes, they're good and we can enjoy them, but they're not what's supremely valuable. And so maybe it's taking our soul yet again and throwing itself upon Jesus, the supremely satisfying one, and to say, God, I wanna seek it in you. I wanna pursue it in you, oh God. I wanna drink from the river of your delights, oh God. I wanna to come to your presence where there's fullness of joy. I wanna be at your right hand where there's pleasures forevermore. So, oh God, would you, would you help us see what responding would look like today? God, would you speak to us and talk to us about that? God, would you give us the courage to obey this morning? Knowing that any renunciation of self is really just a renunciation of lesser joy so we can have more of you, our greatest joy. So, oh God, help us. It's in your good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.